morning. How's everyone doing this wet morning? Like I said, my name's Ricardo. Um, real quick, um, for the past couple weeks, we've been looking at what it means for us to be sinners and for God to be God and how he deals accordingly with that. And last week we talked about how God chooses to enter into a covenantal relationship with his people in order to deal righteously and justly with our sin. And we saw that we went through Genesis 15 and we looked at God entering into a covenantal relationship with Abram and what that looked like and what that meant for us. And so this week what I want to do is I wanted to look at Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, um, where we see the prophet Jeremiah talk about the new covenant that is going to be coming, that we should be that we are expecting. They are they were expecting. So if you guys can turn with me to Jeremiah 31, we read on verses 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least to the, of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their inequity, and I will remember their sin no more. Pray with me. Father God, we come before you, Lord, and we come before your throne of mercy and loving grace. And we thank you for just giving us a way to interact with you where we are no longer under the rules of the Old Covenant, under under the rituals of the Old Covenant, Lord, but we're able to come to you through your Son, Jesus Christ, repent of our sins, and work with you, Father God. We thank you for giving us a way out. Lord, we thank you for being a God of love and mercy and justice, Father God. We come before you, Lord. We ask that you bless this day that we have together as a congregation, Father God. We ask that we're able to come and learn and grow, and you convict us where we need to be convicted. You help us grow where we need to be grown, growing, Father God. We ask that you be with us today. Be with me as I bring your word, Father God, as I share what you put on my heart throughout this past week, Father God. We ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be edifying to you and to this congregation. In your name we pray. Amen. So one of the first things I, I want to um, that stood out to me as I read this verse was that God wants it to be clear in this new covenant that he is going to be doing everything in the new covenant. We see that in a matter of four verses, we see God say, use the word I will seven times. He says, I will make a new covenant, the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. I will put the law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. I will forgive their inequity, and I will remember their sin no more. 
And so what we see is that, is that God wants it to be clear that in this new covenant, he is doing everything on our behalf. We aren't doing anything. We don't need to be doing anything. That God is the one doing the work, not us, not anybody else. And he's very clear with that as we see. He says, he uses that phrase, I will, seven times. And so we see, first thing we see is that God is doing everything, not us. The second thing we see is in, in verse 32. It says, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. This is not going to be like the covenants of the old. This isn't going to be like any other covenants that we see in the Old Testament. And so what we can say is that the new covenant will be different from the old. It will look differently. It will be differently. And the question is, well, how is the new covenant different from the old? And that's the question I kind of want to tackle today is look, looking at these verses is how is the new covenant that the Lord is promising here in Jeremiah going to be different than the covenant of Abraham, the covenant that he made with Moses and the covenant that he made with David? So that's the question I'm going to be trying to answer over the next couple of several minutes. And just hopefully we, we see how great our God is and how much God God loves us. And so before we even get into that, what we have to do is we have to have a proper understanding of the old covenants. Um, usually when we talk about the old covenants, we're talking about three main covenants. We're talking about the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the Davidic covenant. Um, usually when scholars talk about the old covenant, they either are just referring to the Mosaic covenant or referring to all three. And um, for, the, for the sake of, of today, we're gonna, I'm going to use the old covenant referring to all three of those because they all are intertwined, as we'll see. So the Old Covenant is a theocratic Israel is defined by the Abrahamic Covenant, conditioned by the Mosaic Covenant, and brought into focus by the Davidic Covenant. And so one of the first things we see is um, what, does, what does God promise Abraham in Genesis 17.6? We see that the Abrahamic Covenant is about Abraham and his people getting land, a people for his own, and they will be ruled by their own king. And that's what God is promising Abraham in Genesis 17, 6, when he says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. As God saying, this is what I'm going to do for you, Abraham. And then we come to the Mosaic Covenant. And we see that the Mosaic Covenant is the um, God is saying to, to Israel, you will enjoy the blessings of a land of a king. As long as you are obedient to my commandments, as long as you follow my laws and my rules, you will be a blessing. You will have a blessing. We see this in Exodus 19.5, where he says, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, my covenant, you shall be treasured, a treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine. And we see that from that next four verses, next four chapters in, in Exodus, from we have the Ten Commandments, we have, and God has given a bunch of laws to the people of Israel, laws about slaves, laws about altars, laws about restitution, laws about, about social justice. And then you come to, you come to um, the Day of Atonement where God has given the people of Israel a certain way, a very complex and detailed ritual way on how to atone for the sins of Israel. 
And so you see that, that God is saying, as you do this, you will be a blessing. I will be your God and you shall be my people as long as you stay and follow true to my commandments, to my laws. And then we come to the Davidic covenant where God basically focuses the Mosaic covenant into one person. And so Israel is judged according to their king. Israel will go as, they'll go as far as their king goes. And we see this in 1 Kings 6, 11 to 13. Then the word of the Lord came to Solomon. Concerning this temple which you are building, if you walk in my statutes, execute my judgments, keep all my commandments, and walk in them, then I will perform my word with you, which I spoke to your father David, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people. And so ultimately what we see is that the old covenant is contingent upon Israel's obedience to God and his commandments and his covenant with them. As long as they're obedient and following his rules, God will be with his people. For those of us who know our biblical history, that does not happen. Um, Around 587, you have the exile and you have the the sacking up of the temple. And Israel is taken into exile. And they're no longer in the promised land. And it's all because they did not keep God's commandment. They did not keep God's covenant with them. And so we see that that in the old covenant, we see that, that through your disobedience, you may no longer have the blessings. And ultimately what we know is, is that there is no true removal of sin in the old covenant. Um, there is some, you see, some tinkering, some form of, of the covenant of grace, but, but what, we, what we know is that the old covenant is not the covenant of grace. It is not the new covenant. It's not an administration of it. It's just throughout the old covenant, you can see typologi- typologically the revealing of the covenant of grace in the way that God deals, in the way that they law, in their law and in their worship. We see that Abraham is promised an offspring, but but it's, we see that in the New Covenant, Christ is that coming of that offspring that fulfills that. We see that Christ is the perfect sacrifice that takes away sin, not the sacrifices that the um, priesthood, Levitical priesthood did throughout um, the book of, throughout the Old Testament. And so we see that this New Covenant is something that's going to be different. And the, end, and the question is, how will it be different? And we see that according to Hebrews 8.5, says that the old covenant served as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. That the old covenant wasn't the new covenant, wasn't the covenant of grace. It just points to the covenant of grace, points to the new covenant, points to Christ ultimately. And as if we read our Bibles, we should be able to see Christ all throughout the New Testament and see how God is working out redemption for his people. Hebrews 8, 6, 7 says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a, obtained a ministry that is such, that is as much more excellent than that of the old, as the covenant that he, Christ, mediates is better, since he is enacted on better promise. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. And so what we see in Hebrews 8 is that the author tells us that the new covenant is better than the old covenant. So the question is, how is the new covenant different and how is it better than the old covenant? And I believe we see 
and in Jeremiah 31, three ways how the new covenant is better than the old. And so we can just kind of work through that. That would be great. The first way is we find in, in verses 33, where he says, For this covenant I will make with the house of, of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And we see that the first thing, the first way that the new covenant will be better than the old is that God is going to put the law within his people, that God will write it on their hearts. Not man, but God. There is no tablets. There is no going up to the mountain like Moses did and having the Ten Commandments written on the tablets. It's God writing the law on his people's hearts. So first thing is God will do this, not us. God is the one who writes the law on, on people's hearts. And we have to also understand that this is not, this is not a new law. Don't go thinking that, that we are under a new set of laws, a new set of moral laws. For we see that in Matthew 5, 17, God, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So we see that this is the same the same moral law, not the ceremonial law, not the law that, that um, the, Le- the Levitical priesthood had to perform on the Days of Atonement. This is a, the same law, but God is setting that. So it's his moral law. It's the law of God's will, knowing, being conformed to his will. So by putting the law within us, God is putting the, putting the knowledge of the law of, of himself in our hearts. God is putting, making us, in a way, say, God is making us sensitive to God's rule. He's making, by writing in our hearts, God is, is giving us an, effect, an affection for God himself. And we see this um, in reform circles. This is called regeneration or, or, or rebirth. It's a secret act of God that he imparts new spiritual life on his chosen people. We don't know how this works out. We're not giving a rule book on how this is, works out. We just know that, that God puts the law on his people. So God is doing the work bringing his people to himself. And so what that means is, is in essence, is we hear the gospel, and because God has written the law on our hearts as his chosen people, we don't turn from it, but we embrace it. And so God promises to save his own people. God is saying, I'm going to do the work. I'm going to write the law on your hearts. And because of this, you will be sensitive. You will know what it means when you hear my voice. When you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, you won't turn from it. And the reason we're able to sit here as, as followers and believers of Christ is because God has put the law. He has written it on our hearts before the foundations of the earth, before we even knew what was happening, God chose us, and in choosing us, he writes the law on our hearts. God is saying, I will save my people. I will draw them near to me. We see this in John chapter 3, 3 through 8. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. And we see here what Jesus is saying is that God will save his people. We cannot be born again. We cannot see the kingdom of God unless God is working in us first. And we see this promise that God will work in us. We see this play out in Jeremiah 33. We see this in Titus 3, 5 as well. He says this, not because of works done by righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So what God is saying is, is I will give the Holy Spirit to my people. When I read, when I read this verse, I, I, I thought of him. First Peter 2, 9, where God says, and you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. So God is doing the work behind the scenes, not by anything that we did, not that we could earn it, but because of his love and his mercy, God will write the law upon our hearts. And it's through that, and it's through that regeneration, it's through that giving of the Holy Spirit that God gives us, that we're able to come and accept Christ as our Lord and Savior. Without that, we're not able to do that. Without the writing of the law in our hearts, we are incapable of of hearing the gospel and responding and embracing it. It's because God put the law in our hearts that we're able to come and say, God, you are my Lord, you are my Savior. And it's through that that we repent of our sins, not by our own power, but by the power of God in us. God is the one who gives us our spiritual life. No one else. We don't do anything to earn it. God is the one who gives us our spiritual life. God is promising to do the saving here. What we see is that God's saying, I will save you. I will take you out of, of the mess that you have in your life, and I will give you a way out. We do not need to bring any offerings or sacrifice like they did in the Old Testament. God is saying, I will do the work by putting and writing the law on your hearts. I will save you. The second thing that God promises we see at the end of verse 33. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And so God promises to be our God. And we've seen this language before. This isn't new language. This isn't the first time that God is saying this. God has he's said this before all throughout the Old Testament when he's entering into a covenant relationship with his people. God will always say, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So what we see is that that through the new covenant, what God is saying is I will be we were being brought into this covenant to be God's people, not anyone else's. God's alone. And so what we see is that this relationship of, of God and us and us being God's people is being restored. It was broken in the Old Testament when, when Israel broke the covenant, when they broke the law, they were that relationship of God being their God was broken. And so God now is saying, I will restore this relationship with my people. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And so what that means is that by, God, by being God's people now, our salvation is under the object of his care. 
that, that because we are God's people and he is our God, he will take care of us. We are now secured by God's power. We depend on the love of God, not on anything else, solely because he is our God and we are his people. So there's significance here. God is saying, I want to enter into a covenantal relationship with you, and I want to be your God, and you shall be my people. God is saying, I'm going to take care of my people. I will be on your side. So what does this mean? We see in Jeremiah 32, 38-41, what God says. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever, for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant, that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts, that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in the land of faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. So what we see is that, that God is saying, now that I'm your God and you're my people, I will do good for you. I will work it out for you. And he also says in, in Jeremiah 32, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. So what we're seeing is that God is saying, this new covenant that I'm enacting that will come, it cannot be broken. It cannot be broken like the old covenant, like what Israel did by not following the laws, by not following the commandments. And so God is saying, I will be their God, and they will be my people. I will have their best interests in mind. I will save them. I will hold them through. They will persevere because of my work in them, not because they are doing anything for it, but because I'm their God. And we see that there's, there's significance for, for when God says, I am their God and they are my people. That carries weight with God. John Calvin put it this way. It's a little long, but I, I probably couldn't put it any better. He says, um, for whenever God declares that he will be our God, he offers to us his paternal layout and declares that our salvation has become the object of his care. He gives us a free access to him, bids us to recome on his grace. And in short, this promise contains in itself everything needful for our salvation. The case is now also at this day the same under the gospel. For as we are aliens from the kingdom of heaven, he reconciles us by it to himself and testifies that he will be our God. On this depends what follows, and that they shall be my people, for the one cannot be separated from the other. By these words, and the prophet briefly imitates, that the main object of God's covenant is that he should become our father for whom we are to seek and expect salvation, that we should also become his people. So he sees that, that by God declaring that he will be our God, and saying, they shall be my people. God has, has set us apart to be his chosen people, his royal priesthood. And as we see throughout the Old Testament, what happens when God gives the people, when he says, I will be the God and they shall be my people? He brings Israel out of Egypt. He parts the Red Sea for them. He gives them bread while they're in the desert. And God provides and he does good for his people. So when God says, I will be their God and they shall be my people, 
God is saying, I will take care of you. I will do the work that is necessary for you to enter into a covenantal relationship with me. I'm making it work behind the scenes. We see that that this gives us a direct connection with God through the Son, through His Son, Jesus Christ. So the new covenant is better because we are brought back into a covenantal relationship with God for all of eternity. The relationship is being restored once and for all. The third thing that we see, what makes this new covenant different and better, we find at the end of verse 34, for I will forgive their inequity and I will remember their sin no more. So we see that what makes this new covenant different and better is that there's true forgiveness for our sins. We don't have to come once a year like they did on the Day of Atonement and put on some garbs and bring animals and sacrifice animals. We don't have to do any of that. We see that that Christ's sacrifice is sufficient for our sins. And that's what we see. That's what makes the new covenant better. That's what makes it great, is that we have a better sacrifice than anything they could have offered in the Old Testament. God, in the personhood of Christ, gave himself up for us. And it's through that sacrifice that we now have earned forgiveness, that we now have true forgiveness in the work and blood of Christ. And so Hebrews 9 tells us, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made of hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he, Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeemed them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So we see that, that Christ's sacrifice has internal ramifications internal applications that now that since Christ has died we are forgiven for eternity not for for a year for a couple days but for the rest of time and so the new covenant the new the covenant of grace the new covenant gives us eternal forgiveness for our sins it's not just being forgiven but God also says and I will remember their sin no more and we see that the new covenant is better because God himself in the personhood of Christ is our mediator God is the one who laid his life down for us 
God is the one who's doing the work, who was nailed to that cross on our behalf through the work, through the personhood of Christ. God is the one who sacrifices his son for us, for our behalf. We did not do anything to earn it. God is doing the work. God is establishing the law in our hearts that leads to our regeneration. God is restoring our relationship with his chosen people. God is the one who gives the way for forgiveness of sin and eternal salvation. We see that the promise of the new covenant is God's final answer to our sin. Once the new covenant comes and once Jesus completes his work, then there's no need for another covenant. This is the last and final and perfect covenant, as it says in Hebrews. And so Christ comes and he is the new and final covenant. It's through his work on the cross that we're able to come and God is able to say, they are my people. I am their God. And it's through the work, it's through this new covenant that we now celebrate the life and death of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. Hebrews 10 says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to to the confession of our hope without wavering, For he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's through this new covenant that God is making with his people that we have, it says here, the full assurance of faith. Because God is doing the work. God is saying, I will make a new covenant. I will put the law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. Ultimately, God is saying, I will forgive their inequity and I will remember their sin no more. And it's through this new covenant that we're able to come before a holy and righteous God, full of our mess, full of our sin. That he's able to look at us and not see us for for, for the mess and the dirt that we are. But see us as righteous. Sees Christ in us. And this is the promise that leads us to that point where where Christ is going to come. And we'll see that for the next 400 years after this, Israel's waiting and waiting and waiting waiting for their Messiah, waiting for their Savior. 400 years of silence. And then Christ comes. And that's what we've been celebrating this whole month, and that's what we're working towards, is is the coming of Christ. And it's a joyful time. It's a time of, of great, where we should be happy. But ultimately, it leads to the death and resurrection of Christ.
And that's what we need to be remembering, that God, by sending his son, has given us our way out. Has given us our way. Has given us the full assurance of eternal salvation. So as we go about this week, may we remember that Christ, that God is saying, I will be their God. They shall be my people. That means that we should have full faith, full assurance that God is going to save his people. But that does not come with some consequences. That does not mean that Christ does not have to suffer. It's for that reason that Christ has to suffer. So as we go about this holiday season, as we as we draw closer to to, him, to Christmas, as as we draw closer to that day, may we remember what that means. That yes, Christ has come, but He's come because He has a purpose in mind, and it's to save us from our own self. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, Lord. We give you all the honor, all the praise, and all the glory, Lord. That you would look down on people, and that despite their mess, despite their sin, despite their flaws, you call them your people, and you declare yourself their God. And it's through that that we're able to to have the assurance that you have made a way for us. That you will save us from our own wretchedness, Father God. From our own sin, you will declare us righteous because of the sacrifice of your Son. We thank you for the promise of the new covenant. We thank you for sending your Son to die for our sins. Lord, convict us of anything that we need convicting of. We pray this in your son's mighty and powerful name. Amen.